Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And um, I, I know that that this is not what, why people listen to my interviews, but I love when entrepreneurs talk about their biggest freaking failures. I love it. And I'll tell you why. I think that I was born with this idea that I was going to make it. I, I, I believe that God thought that I was going to make it from an early age. And the problem with that, it's a benefit that I wish everybody had because there's a sense of invincibility and possibilities that you're born with, that you grow up with, that I have to this day, every moment in my life. The challenge with that is when there is a big negative setback, it's just like, this doesn't compute. What did I get everything wrong going back to my old childhood perception of myself? Or is this is something going on here or am I, is there something wrong with me or did I lose it? Right. Like there's this, there's this difficulty. I think that, that optimists have in dealing with tough situations. And you kind of talked about that in your book, Todd, there's this difficulty that people who believe they're meant for greatness, who do achieve a lot of uh, success, who, when there's a setback suffer, I'm going to be honest, I deal with that. Um, and so I like to see how how other people get in those situations so that I know when I get there, how I can get out. And also so that day to day, I think if anything goes wrong, we'll hear five people I can think of who've done worse. I think I can recover if they did. All right, Todd, not to paint you into the done worse corner, but Todd oh, Palmer. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like you're worried about it. Um, Todd Palmer is an entrepreneur who is the founder of Diversified Industrial Staffing. It's a staffing company. He built it up. He um, tried to follow in his older brother's footsteps. Older brother really just set the model for how to do it. And still, he had a big setback. And uh, we're going to talk about that setback in this interview. And then he had a recovery. We're going to talk about the recovery. We're going to talk about how he got into the Inc. 5000 multiple times because his business was growing so fast. And uh, talk about why... He essentially gave the whole thing up to be a coach. And today he is the founder of Extraordinary Advisors. They basically help you. And by they, I mean him. It's his philosophy. It's his, it's his energy and soul that goes into this business. His goal is to um, help you achieve a life by design. It's that kind of coaching for entrepreneurs and leaders. We're going to find out about both those businesses thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. Oh, and we're going to find out about his book, which I read. It's called From Suck to Success, A Guide to Extraordinary Entrepreneurship. We're going to find out about that thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first will host your website, right? It's called HostGator. And the second, if you're, uh, if you're paying people, contractors, employees, you need a rippling. And I'll tell you why later. First, Todd, good to have you here. Oh, Andrew, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Worst uh, day, how much debt did you have? <laughs> so I, I actually benchmarked the worst day, the worst day of my life. My mess has become my message. Um, was September, yeah, September 9th, 2006. I was $600,000 in debt. I was two months away from losing my house. The bank was calling the note. I... Um, was the two oh just for context the six hundred thousand dollars in debt was on a, on a two million dollar run rate from a, a staffing company so immediately for anybody who understands the staffing business or, or numbers basically in general i was completely upside down again again as i look back anybody who understands numbers except for me back in 2006 make sure you preface that and um i really had this imposter syndrome this itty bitty shitty committee in my head that was telling me you know that I wasn't enough. I wasn't doing good enough. 
you know, but you, I love your comment Even about when you're doing well, you, you had this. So, well, so, so here's the, it's the elevator. I'm doing well. The business is doing well. I'm doing well. The business sucks. I'm doing poorly. It's up and down, up and down, up and down. And because I was always, you know, as you mentioned, my, my older brother was in the staffing business. He got up to a $600 million run rate with his company. <clears throat> and, and so there was a, there was a comparison game, which he didn't participate in. It wasn't like he was comparing me. It was an internal thing I was doing. Younger brother, older yeah. brother. I'm Eli Manning. He's Peyton Manning. I won two Super Bowls, but he's Peyton Manning. Um, it, it, got a, it got a little complicated in my head. My imposter syndrome really was driving the, the if my life was a car, two-seater car, the imposter syndrome was fully in charge. I was in the passenger seat because it was telling me I needed to be all things to all people all the time. And every time there was a mistake, I would only see it as a failure. I would only see it as, well, I'm the CEO. It failed. I'm a failure. And so the negative loop- What's, what's an example powerful. of that? What's an example of one negative thing that happened that you internalized much more than you should have? Uh, losing a client. I mean, simple things. Uh, losing a, if you I mean, lose a client, that is them making an evaluation of you. They know the right you. Everyone else who's still a client actually is maybe you've hoodwinked them. Oh, wait till is they the leave. As soon as they figure me out, wait till they leave. Ooh, yes. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, that it was that immersed deeply in, in, into my psyche at that point. You know, when I did sales, before I got into recruiting, uh, I sold for other people. I was a salesperson in the recruiting space. The, the rejection and the pain of cold calling was literally deafening for me. It was crippling for me to the point you know, that, that, that rejection, that rejection, that rejection, that rejection. I didn't have a good foundational thing. So I, I liked your, your, your intro about optimism and how you yeah. just saw the world in a different way. As a, as a kid, um, my mother was a single parent. My dad passed away when I was five. And she's raising me in such a way that I was kind of, in her mind, the chosen one. So when you're the chosen one, when you're, you're Neil and you're looking at the matrix and you don't see it correctly, you're wondering what's wrong with you. And then you've got your older brother who's crushing it, making, you know, making a lot of the right decisions as you see from the outside. And once I've talked to him after, afterwards, we realize that you know, we're much more alike than we were different at many junctures in our careers. And so that in, in, that, in, that, in that programming from childhood, I was taught to be a rugged individualist because it served me well. And that's fine in startup mode as an entrepreneur. I'm HR, I'm sales, I'm ops, I'm accounting. Trying to scale that and bring other people in and those fractures in trust, who those people I hired. So now I'm hiring people who aren't any good. Wow. And I'm in the recruiting space. I must be a really terrible recruiter. And so how are you able to get back on a call when you're feeling that way about yourself? It, it was hard. It was hard, um, but you would push yourself because that's what you needed to do. That, well, it was that way. So was, I started my company when I was 27 years old. I got custody of my son when I was 24. Okay. Um, it was a two-year battle of custody. It put me in, in enormous personal debt, both from a financial position, but also from an emotional position. But I, I, I grew up without a dad. My dad passed away when I was five. And I didn't want my son to grow up without his dad. So it was very important for me to to demonstrate and role model for him what hard work was, what how we show up and how we do the job. So I have found, and I do this with a lot of the leaders I coach now, we'll actually psychologically do more for other people than we will do for ourselves left to our own devices. You dedicate the book to your son. I wonder, and you talk about uh, getting uh, custody of your son. I wonder can you say why it was important for you to not share custody and get sole custody that you went into deep 
debt over it? Sure. So I offered full custody or I offered shared custody Uh and it became a battle. Um, She Uh came from from a very traditional background and in that traditional background um, that she had more money than I had, her parents had money. And so they just kept funding her. So the, the, the custody battle took, I said, what, two, three years. Um, We never, we didn't have any assets. We were just out of college. There wasn't any house to fight over. It was, it was my son. And over the course of that time, the, every time that there was a step forward, for example, and something would fall in my favor, there would always be an appeal. So the mm-hmm. process took so long because we had to exhaust all options for the appeal process. Uh, by the way, the mic is rubbing up against something. We should okay. watch out with it. Um, okay. All right. And so one of the things that you decided to do was you said, look, I've got my son now. I have to take care of him. I need to spend time with him. I'm going to do that as an entrepreneur. I'm already in this space of helping people get work. I think I could do this full time just like like my boss does and like my brother does. You start a business. Where do you what's where do you get your first customer? And then how do you get the first uh, employees that you place? Well, it was a, it, it, for and people who know me, well, my friend is surprising, but I got incredibly rigidly disciplined with okay. my schedule. So I would spend the mornings doing sales and I would spend the afternoons doing recruiting. So I'd find the opportunities in the morning for, for jobs and in the okay. afternoon, I'd find candidates to place them. And this is, this feels so long ago. We used to have to run newspaper ads. There, there, there wasn't, you couldn't go on Indeed, you couldn't go on monster.com or anything like that. I think you said in, was, your, in your book, you'd even go through the yellow pages. Am I right about that? Oh, to find clients for sure. To absolutely. Clients, yeah. So to, to find the first client, um, I actually went back in my history when I was doing, so I took a couple of years off of being a recruiter and doing, and did some other work. So my non-compete had expired and I reached back to clients that I had a good rapport with, mm. started reaching out to them, letting them know I was back into the business. And if they ever had anything, how can I help? I had my own business. Uh, you know, I, I was a self-appointed CEO. It said so on my business card that I got at Kinko. So it must be true. And I just kept going forward from there. Okay. So then you're on your own, you've getting your clients, you're building up your business. And at some point you said in your book, uh, from suck to success, I just didn't, you didn't want to spend time on it. You, you wanted to get away from it. You put other people in charge and you went to take on another project. What was it that you didn't like about the business? And I understand that it seems like a responsible thing to do. You've hired professionals, they're going to run it. But what was it about you that made you say, I've got to step away from this recruiting company? So for anybody who's been a recruiter, um, so if you've not been a recruiter, this may not land with your audience, but if you've been a recruiter, you're a middleman. You're between someone who needs people as an employer and someone who's looking for a job. They, they see you often as a necessary evil. It's, it's very much, I've got friends who are still in the business. We call it a soul sucking experience where nobody's happy. So the, the candidate feels like you're taking money out of their pocket, even though you're working for them for free. And the employer who's got to pay you is, is resentful. And they, and they treat the human being as if it's a, a gear or a part. Mm. And when that part doesn't work, somehow it's your fault as the manufacturer, the recruiter. And it, it got very much, um, there was no joy in it. Mm. And so I found that you know, now that I'm coaching people, one of the things I love about it is the gratitude and appreciation that people express for a job well done. I like that. And as I, as I went through the, the you know, tw- I, was, I mean, I went diversified for 25 years. We found with our internal staff, we have to, used to have to do a lot of um, mental gymnastics around the, the feelings of not being good enough. 
I used to talk to them extensively about my, my battles with imposter syndrome, but also that, that how do we create a tribe internally within the organization so that we can weather the, these, 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 you know, these outliers who, who are unappreciative of the work we did. And I found that the people liked working for me. They liked working for the company. They really didn't like their jobs, which I thought was really fascinating because being a recruiter is really hard. And so you were also placing, from what I can tell from the website, you were placing people in, um, in factories, in manual mm-hmm. labor positions, right? Got it. And I could see then how it, how those clients were seeing the employees they were, they were uh, hiring through you as extensions of their machinery. All right. So you said, I'm yeah. going to step away to what? Where were you spending your attention instead? Um, I went into a space called employee leasing. Now it's called the PEO. Mm-hmm. And where people would put their, their all their employees on our payroll, we'd lease them back. Then we'd run their payroll, their HR. It, and what I liked about it was, it didn't have the highs and the lows of the staffing industry. Once you got a client, they stayed for at least a year per contract. Many clients stayed for an extended period of time because the, the the change was painful for them. A lot of golden handcuffs in those relationships. Um, you know. It, Staffing is very much like a mountain range. You place somebody on a Monday and you feel high, you'd feel excited, you feel proud of your work, proud mm-hmm. of your team. The person quits by Wednesday through no fault of your own and, and you start this misery churn all over again. Um, but going back to the space we figured we were in, we were placing a lot of general labor at one point and we pivoted up into the skilled trade sector, higher pay wages, more reliable, more dependable, more increased demand, diminished supply over the course of time. And so we figured we, we moved the model he said, we're going to rep the candidates because the clients are always going to, we just decided the clients are basically by and large going to be always unappreciative. But if the I can take it higher through you, yeah, the business that we the employees, were, uh-huh. yeah. So the candidates were like, we treat them like sports, you know, sports stars or actors or movie stars. Like we're going to, you know, you're my Tom Cruise. You're my Mike Trout. Let me get you a better job. Let me get you. We averaged about 20% pay wage increase for that candidate because they didn't know how to find a job. They knew how to weld. They knew, knew how to run a machine. They knew how to manage a plant, but they didn't know how to find a job. So we, we reversed the model. And that's really where, as it talked about in the book, we, we found that inflection point of increased demand and diminished supply in that space, made the Inc. 5000 six times and got out of debt in eight years, all with the intention of reverse engineering the process versus letting the clients just completely drive the, the marketplace this, for our business. Recovered. How did you yeah. get to that low? Where Was it that clients stopped paying you? Yes. So I got to that low. So you mentioned that I, I'd hired these, ex, these, these, these people with a lot of staffing industry experience. Part mm-hmm. of my imposter syndrome, as I've now reflected upon it, was I'm going to hire people with more experience than me because I always identified that experience equaled talent, equaled success. Using a sports analogy, you know, I'd rather have Fernando Tatis Jr. at 22 than you know some 35-year-old journeyman shortstop. The journeyman shortstop's got more experience, but he, he's not the next, you know, the next big superstar on the horizon. So I was, I was assigning more weight and value to history and experience versus actual talent. That was okay. my mistake. And I realized since to realize that as I redid the company. Um, so I hired these, these two gentlemen who a lot of services, a lot of experience through Kelly services, which is, a, you know, a, a huge national company. They're headquartered here in Detroit, in Detroit, brought them in, kind of turned the business over to them in many respects because uh, the story I told myself was these guys combined had been doing this for 50 plus years. And I've been doing this for like six. They must know more than yeah. I did. And they were good on certain things, but they were, they were all about chasing the dream, chasing that they used to call them the whales. They wanted companies that used, 
you know, 50, 100, 200 employees at any given times. And there's only one so many white whales in the, in the ocean. And, and two, they really do dictate the terms. So we had two whales that went bankrupt on us and stuck us with, of the, four, of the ah. 600,000, they stuck us with, I think, 245,000 that was unpaid money. Now, a lot of companies can pivot off of that because they're, the, what they've got into that is different than what a staffing company's got into that. So what we had into that, so, so of the $242,000, I think it was, yeah, 242, 85 to 90% of that was money paid to the employees and money paid to the government and money paid to the insurance. So our margins were razor thin. We couldn't, it, it was like taking on water. We just could, it was, it was yeah. like getting hit by, by a cannonball that w- we couldn't get out of the way of. Um, my mistake, my part in that is I let the days outstanding get too long because I kept trusting the salespeople who would say, oh, no, they always pay late. They always pay late. They always pay late. Yeah. And so that was my part to own. But again, I trusted, trusted, but didn't verify. I, I would certainly have handled it much differently nowadays. But the reality was I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was an extremely expensive, painful lesson. It seemed you, you were also too burned out to care about the details at that point. That, that is also what true. you yes. signed up for. Well, it, it wasn't. No, and it it was again, it was in my mind I had a definition of what success was gonna be. Yeah. I, I think I have a graphic in the book right there. You know, I thought success is going from you know point A to point B, north to south. It's 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 a rocket ship. A to straight success. line. And from what I remember in the book, it was it's like a line that goes from the bottom left of the graph to the upper right. That's success. And then you show right next to it what it really is is just this spirally thing. That's oh my god! It's the corkscrew roller coaster from hell. I, yeah. And I didn't know that. So my perception again. That's why I wrote the book for the twenty-seven-year-old me. I didn't know what I had signed up for. I thought I had signed up for this rocket ship to the stars, and I'm on this this dovetailing, you know one seater plane that's going all over the place because in my mind, I knew from what we're talking with my brother to have a quote unquote successful staffing company, you had to get $20 million in revenue. So I was going to do that. I had a target. That's what I was going to go for. And I didn't care what collateral damage, whether it was, you know, stress and stress and strife with my son, uh, relationships, not paying attention to the margins on that 20 million because I was just looking at the one number again, hearing me tell the story, I'm like, Oh my gosh, what? But I didn't know, you know, back in 1997, if you think about it, being an entrepreneur basically meant like you were, I was, I was the entrepreneur who was too feisty to work for somebody. I had too many ideas, too many opinions. That's kind of a pain in the butt. We didn't have Marcus Lemonis and the profit. We didn't have shark tank. We didn't have Inc magazine and entrepreneur magazine, all these different pieces of information. We didn't have podcasts to inform us of what we were signing up for. So I got onto, I got onto the Titanic, not knowing it was destined to run into the iceberg. It's it, to me, it's amazing how many people who I thought were doing well, were at times doing terribly. The guy who I think about a lot is the founder of Mercury bank. Now Imad, he was running Hayzap. I thought Hayzap was just a straight success and he's such a level calm person. I don't think I've ever seen him exuberant and I've definitely never seen him depressed. And it's, it's not until just before he did an interview with me recently that I had to say that he had to shake me essentially before the interview and say, Andrew, we didn't, we were a mess. It wasn't working for us with Hayzap. And then I looked at it and I realized, oh yeah, of course it was supposed to be this thing. Then it was that, then it was five other things before he was able to sell it. All right. So to, to, to get back, what you did was you said, I'm going to let people go, everyone who works at the company. I'm going to start fresh. We're no longer going to be selling gears in a machine. We are now going to be starting brand new by hiring people 
who by finding job candidates who have skills, who need to earn more for their skills because they're in biggest demand. That was your big revelation. Yes and no. Okay, tell so me. So the, the first revelation was to realize I didn't have to have all the answers to all the problems all the time. And I hired, I hired a coach. And I, as I talk about the book, I hired my older brother because he just had a great exit, just sold a, a big company. Um, you did had, say you hired your older brother, Greg, right? That's his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah Greg. I, he wouldn't just do it for free. He wouldn't just say, brother. So let's talk. No, this is a, no I love the question. Yes. We should talk about that because yeah. he did offer to do it for free. Okay. And I told him no. And let me tell you why. Yeah. I told him no because I knew somewhere you talk about kind of like your internal thing about optimism. I knew somewhere in my misery and my despair and my depression, I knew if I didn't pay him, I wouldn't listen to him. There was a little uh, voice in my head saying, I won't take him seriously. I won't fix this problem. I won't turn this business around. I won't keep my house because I knew that I wouldn't listen to him. And he even said, um, you're my brother. I'll, I'll, I'll help you for uh, no. I knew if I didn't put skin into the game and if okay. I didn't invest in me and invest in the business and pay for it, then I, I just knew for whatever reason, it was, probably, it was probably the best instinct I had when I was 20, you know, 33. How, yeah. How formal was it? How often were you meeting? What was the structure? So I, I was paying him for, you know, for a business losing its ass. I, I was paying him a lot of money per month okay. and I always paid him first. And it was every week you'd get on a call or was it every day? It was every week. Um, and, and, and I mean, he's my brother. So if I needed more, we, we, get, we right. got more. Um, and he came out, of, you know, he would come out once a quarter for a while. And, you know, the thing that I remember him coming out and we talked about like, how do you, you know, I think a, a great coach asks great questions. And he said to me, you know, how did you get here? And we kind of laid out all the problems and the people and my choices and their decisions and me not watching the, the letting the inmates run the asylum, all that stuff. He goes, what would you have done differently? And I laid out what I would have done differently. He's like, huh. So you really did know what to do. Why didn't you do it? Great question. Here's what I said. I said, I was so disconnected from the business. I was so resentful to the business. And I wanted to have some, I, I go, I wanted to be liked by my staff. And, 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 I, and I wanted them to see me as a great boss. And the look on his face, like, you got to be kidding me. Um, you really, I mean, it still sits, I can like, close my eyes and see him. That he's like, that's not what a good leader does. But I just read some article or some idea somewhere about, you know, be, be the champion of your employees. What I missed in the article, and whether it was there or not, I don't remember, is people respect what the boss inspects. Set upfront expectations. Lead your team. Hold them accountable. Hold yourself accountable. Approach everything with massive curiosity, like Greg was doing with me. Get get an understanding of where the bottlenecks are in the organization. You're the CEO. Remove the bottlenecks and let people do their jobs. I didn't know any of that. When when he asked you, what would you have done differently? I want to go and I I want to journal that tomorrow morning. I'm worried that if I do that, my answers to that are going to just be useless self-evaluation about the past and things I can't change. How do you, how do I keep it from being that? How do I keep it from, how wasn't it for you a question of regret and resentment about what you couldn't do in the past instead of an opportunity to find new, new things to do today? So for me, you know, I, I felt I was kind of, you know, kind of just opened up the chest cavity and I was laid bare to, to the world going to, you know, somebody who I incredibly admired. I mean, I love my brother. 
and I admire his work and his professionalism. And, and for him to say, what would you have done differently? I kind of wanted to know, did I miss something? And when he said, yeah, you basically knew the right things, but your imposter syndrome, your itty bitty shitty committee, your, your desire to be like prevented you from doing the right things. That's, that was important, an important lesson for me to learn. So if I were to, if I were to write today about things, um, they were really lessons learned. They were, and I've, and I've all, and now I'm at 52, Mike, by the way, as you're, as you're yeah. talking with the collar, uh-huh. what, I, what I've learned is that it's about the learning process. It's about every, every lesson I got was a gift. You know, I remember saying to him, you know, he talked about the opening of the book is kind of like the world's you know, biggest explosion where I'm sitting in the back of my office, I'm crying my eyes out. I, I was a complete failure. I remember him saying to me, Someday you'll look back on this and, and you'll have a greater appreciation about how far you've come. And I remember saying, I'm never talking about this day ever again for the rest of my life. And now I talk about it every day. And so as we thought, think about if you were to journal, what would you do differently? First thing I would do is approach it with self-compassion. Because essentially that's what he gave me. He, he gave me compassion. In that compassionate moment, he's like, huh. So you did, you know, he validated what I was doing. He dug deeper why I didn't, you know, I, what I was going to do was basically the right answers. Why didn't I do them? He dug into that. He never shamed me. He never guilted me. He, he could pretty much tell I was the, the, the better at kicking my butt than he would have ever been. Mm-hmm. And he just, and that's, I think, the value of having the outside perspective that he provided. So now internally, whatever question, whatever journaling you do, have self-compassion so that you are able to learn from it, not be shamed and guilted by it. I think Todd also it sounds a lot like what we used to do in school with those Harvard business case studies, those Harvard business cases where they would set up in a, in a, a scenario that really existed and then ask you, how would you have dealt with it as a way of showing you, of helping you think through real business situations so that you can see that you can handle them when when uh, tough moments come in the future. Uh, basically what you're saying is it's not about regrets. It's about understanding what happened, analyzing it so that you can analyze what's going on today and figure out what to do in the future. I think that's what, what the benefit of that yeah. is. Yeah. That, that's more the approach he took. He's like, hey, let's do a postmortem. Let's take a look, you know, like a case study back in school. Let's take a look at what your decisions you made. When you, when you came to that fork of the road, you went this way, but you wanted to go that way. You know, you went to the right. Why didn't you go to the left? Let's talk about that. And let's talk about some other decisions so that you know, if anything, it would be a, for me, you know, I think part of the job of being a coach is being a good teacher also so that we can have the, you know, the it's, he'd already done his hero's journey. I mean, he just, he just exited from a company that was doing $600 million in revenue. I was just starting my hero's journey and, and for him to, to help me get some, and I didn't have clearly a lot of self-awareness. So if, if you could give me some self-awareness in a positive way, like, Hey, what you would have done would have been the right decision versus, yeah, it would have been the right decision. What the hell? You, why didn't you do it? Hey, you didn't do it. Help me understand what held you back from making that decision it was much kinder and, and, and it landed much better. And then it helped you see that uh, imposter syndrome, the itty bitty shitty committee, as you talked about, that's in your head, which you had a great illustration of in your book, Thank which you. is like, I think it was all these different characters that go on in our heads that are talking to us at all all the time. I don't think most people are aware that they have it. I don't think most people are aware of their self-talk or their self-images. For some people, it seems to be more visual. I just think it's it's there 
and it's like a refrigerator that makes a lot of noise and you don't notice that it's making noise until it stops. And then you realize, oh, this thing has been broken and it's just going off. Um, I think that's what's going on. So you get back on, you then build this business. You um, you get into the Inc. 5000. I actually am conf- I wanted to confirm it by going to Inc. and I could see it in here. 2013, 2012, 2011, 2010, 20, 2009, and 2007 is when you were in Inc. 5000, right? Correct. At your highest, what was the uh, the revenue? It's a little under nine million. So okay. using twenty is my using twenty is my benchmark. I got halfway towards the the fictitious goal of the the gold the the golden prize. Because somewhere I, I forget where you said it. I think it was in the early part of the book. You said that it's not valuable to have a staffing company until it hits twenty million. Is that it? That, was, that was the story I was telling myself. Ah, that, okay. That, that that was my that was my what I was trying to illustrate for the reader was, you know, we we often talk about well, we need to have goals. We need to have objectives. We need to be striving, you know, BHAGs, whatever we want to call them. Yes. And I, I was trying to illustrate my only BHAG, my only goal is $20 million. So that's it. That's a win or lose. That's an expectational goal. I either hit it or I didn't. As I pivoted and as I've matured as a leader and now as a coach, uh, I've realized that the more intentional I am, okay. I'm actually literally using a different part of my brain. So uh, as, it, as the book opens, it's written by uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Danny Friedland. He's my current coach. So I coach people and I get coached. So my saw, my saw continues to be sharpened. And I remember when I hired him, talking about going specifically to your self-talk portion, he's like, if you just talk to yourself differently, you will literally reprogram I'm like, your brain. I said, well, this is like some Tony Robbins mumbo jumbo stuff. you know. And he's like, all right, come to San Diego. I'll put you, I'm a doctor. I'll put you under an MRI machine and I will ask you questions and we will record your brain firing in different parts. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I still got it. I want to go do that. So I paid and I went and we did that. Because he, he couldn't get through my stubbornness and my pride and ego still at the time that there's a different way to do things. And, you know, we can muscle through things or we can whip, you know, sports action. You know, we can muscle through things, yeah. you got whip action. There, there's all these different ways to do it. But when you, when you're literally using, so the, the expectational part of our brains really fires primarily in the reptilian part of your brain, in the amygdala. You want the intentional part of your brain, the creative part of your brain to be, in, to be used as often as possible, especially as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think. And that's used, that's in the frontal, prefrontal cortex. And the way he talked to me, I, he, it was very clear, like, you're firing here, you're firing here. What so and I and what he, it was brilliant. He was like, "What would you say to yourself under these circumstances?" So I wrote out. So that's why he's great. He says, "I'm going to ask you the questions as if you ask the questions, and you can just see my brain firing differently." So mm-hmm. I was my own worst enemy sometimes. And so, just because a different part of your brain is activated when you're thinking negative thoughts versus more useful thoughts, what does that mean? It just it doesn't that mean that just a different part of your brain is working. But it's, it's the it's the source. You know, it's, it's, it's like eating food, right? You, know, you, get, you get good carbs and bad carbs. The, you, your brain is going to give you different information from different hemispheres. Okay. And then there's that awareness around that. And then the decisions and the choices I'm going to make off of that. Um, going back to the, Greg's conversation with me, why did I do what I did? And why didn't I do it differently? Um, had he been in, in critical parent mode, I may have shut down. Mm. But because he was in inquisitive mode and curiosity mode, I, I was more open to that. So... It's the, it's demands and resources. 
you know, as a lot of demands are placed on us as CEOs and entrepreneurs, if our resources don't match that, we're going to start operating, they go down and we start operating in a different part of our brain hemispheres, which cause a different result and those different results, different action, different result. It's all, it's not, the brain's all different. That's the best way I can answer that. Why did you leave the business? Why aren't you running diversified industrial staffing now? Um, great question. So about a dozen years ago, I met Simon Sinek before he wrote his first book. And he, we did two years to figure out my two words, improve lives. I brought that to diversified. That was kind of gasoline on the fire. It really did help. Um, what I learned for me is if something gives me energy, I want to do more of it. If something depletes and drains my energy like an energy vampire, I want to do less of it, whether it's an activity, whether it's a human being, or in this case, it was my business. Um, as I'm honest with myself, I could be a recruiter, I could be a CEO, and there's parts of it I absolutely enjoyed. But there's a lot of it that was really stressful for me, and it, it took toll on me, it took toll on relationships. When I would go out and speak, when I would go out and teach, when I would go out and, you know, I, I coached informally for 15 years. I, I'm a part of EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. I did a lot of volunteering within the accelerator portion of EO to help members go from point A to point B to qualify. It's kind of like a farm system. And I remember the first year I did that, I had six entrepreneurs, four of them within a year got up to EO qualifications. And they were very appreciative of the contributions I made to them. I got energy from that. And I would go to the office the next day and I'd be talking to my staff. Oh yeah, I was really, I'm bouncing all over the place. All right, now let's talk about staffing. And it would just like, the, the, it would just like suck the air right out of me. And the more I did that, I'm talking to my coach about it. But he, I will tell you, there, there was a pivotal moment five years ago. I, I gave a speech to a bunch of high school kids um, about, about how to find a job and some other different things. And it was two hours from my house. I drive out there and the principal greets me at the door. We're, we're going through the stuff. Go on stage. About 15 minutes into a 60-minute presentation, power goes out. Lights go out. Lose my mic. I just kept going. And I got more excited and more passionate about the message. I got the kids involved. I started doing like Q&A right in the middle, waiting, you know, kind of buying time till the power came up. And lost my slides. Didn't care. Just kept going. Got teachers involved. I got done, standing ovation. There's a picture of the principal coming up and giving me a hug afterwards. And whispers in me, he was like, oh my gosh, I thought you were going to die up here. I'm so glad this turned out okay. I mean, he was just so genuinely sweet, right? So we got a two-hour ride home. Got a call with my coach. I talked to him. It was an hour call, 45 minutes. I didn't think he said other than hello, nothing. Because I was breaking down what I did, how it felt, and the energy, and the kids, and the this, and the da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. He goes, let me stop you because we're almost out of time. <laughs> Pay attention to this day. You, this is the most excited I've ever heard you. How do you get more of this in your life and less of what you currently have? And that's why you, you pivoted to this. I wonder, why didn't you sell the business? I didn't sell the business because at the time I was married to, to my vice president. We'd been a couple for 13 years. She worked for me for 10. So before anybody's listening, like, oh, well, look, looks like someone's, you know, fishing in the company pond. It was the act, the act opposite. Um, and our relationship was coming to an end for a lot of reasons. So she was going to run the business and I was going to exit and coach and speak and, and, and live my life by design. And in that process, I, I had some choices I had to make. And so ultimately what I decided was my, my health and my happiness was more important than anything else. Um, I had been there, done that and survived it. I, I figured another economic interruption was on the horizon and 
I had, you know, talked with my team, let them know where I stood, helped them all land other jobs. And I, and I ended up shutting the business down um, because my heart wasn't in it anymore. Mm-hmm. And if the it relationship- wasn't a sellable with, business? It wasn't a sellable business because I didn't really work very hard to try to sell it. Um, I, I, the employees I had would have had to go in the sale. I felt weird doing that. Um, my ex, Lisa, had already found another job for a competitor. She was honoring her non-compete. I always respect her for that. Um, I always tell people I'm successfully divorced because we still could have a communication and it's not like, you know, Rome is burning and Nero's fiddling. Um, and my heart just wasn't it. And I had gotten some client coaching clients. I had gotten some speaking gigs. Um, I was gone a lot. We tried a virtual model for a little while and it just, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, it was kind of, I always compared it to kind of like a rock band. You know, all, all the original members had left, but me, uh, nobody really wanted to play our hits anymore, but nobody really wanted to write any more new songs. So that kind of put us in a spot. Um, new people were, you know, the nice people, they were all nice people. So I, t- I took my, my number one recruiter. I hired him as my agent for speaking gigs, Jeremy. Because uh-huh. uh, he was, oh, you're really good. I'll come work for me. He's like, oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. So we worked together until the pandemic hit and there's no more stages to speak from. So he's now started his own company and we still keep in touch. You know, for me, it was always important to, to end, these, end these relationships in, in a healthy way mm-hmm. versus finger pointing and misery and, and drudgery. So that's why I said I'm successfully divorced. Um, so that, you know, people understand that these are all choices I made. For a long time, I felt like the business was kind of controlling my life. But what about this? It feels like if you were still running the business, even if it was just limping along, it would have given you a better sense of self. Well, maybe not for you. For most people so, to say, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, I run this business, it makes this many millions so, of dollars in revenue. So the, the, now the you flip, should hire me as a coach. You don't need the, that. The flip of the flip of that was when I would when I was doing both, people say, Well, how much time are you gonna have for me if you gotta go run this mm. other company? Okay. And I'm like, oh, and, and I remember talking to to my coach, and there's a there's a philosophy out there. If you're gonna end something, do you, do you, yeah, I tried to bleed it out. I tried to you know I tried to cut down a cut down a tree with a butter knife. I'm just kind of chipping away, chipping away, chip. Yeah, I hadn't really committed. And he goes, you may want to consider. He called it he called it burn the ships, which is is a famous story from from days when I can't remember, it was Ponce de Leon or somebody landed Cortez on it. Cortez apparently Cortez came yeah, up, burned the ships, burned a ship so that his men would have to fight or die there. Right, fight well, to that, win or die. Well, because I found that the way my brain works and the way I operate, I'm either all in or I'm out. Yeah. I don't I don't do the middle well. I just yeah. don't. So like when I coach my clients, I have a very active model. I want to be in the firefight with them at their worst moments and I want to hear about their best moments so I can be of support to them. And I and I found that when I was trying to live between the two worlds, I, I was just doing a lot of dating, but I wasn't getting married to either side. And it's like something's got to change. And once I made the decision. You know, it was scary. Oh my God, was I freaking out? I, I put up a nest egg, so I, I knew I had a runway. And I remember when I really decided, is that I did the, the Ikigai model again, like I talked about in the book. And every time I did it, it just kept coming back to the same answer to improve lives. The best way for me to improve lives is to coach, to coach CEOs. And I found in the, in the coaching space, anyways, not a lot of coaches had actually been a, a CEO for 25 years. And there certainly weren't a lot of coaches out there that had gotten out of the debt that I'd gotten out of, restructured the business, grown it to the height I'd grown it to. It certainly, I, I grew it with the team. It wasn't all me, but I'd been through that, those wars versus buy, you know, buy my course for 300 bucks and, and we'll 
will teach you everything you need to know. That's why I wrote the book. I learned from Tony Robbins is what they tend to do, right? They recycle somebody else's. All right. You mentioned Ikigai. I'm going to come back and ask you about that specifically. Let me do a quick spot for my sponsor. It's Rippling. And you know what? It kind of connects to something that you said in your book, Todd. You talk about the, uh, the founder of Interview Valet and yes. how you said, give me a list of things you don't want to do. And one of the things that he did not want to do is something that a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to do, which is payroll. And I totally relate to that. It is not just time sucking to get that stuff in there. It's time sucking also at the end of the year to make sure that all the paperwork is set up and that you hit the deadlines for not just the IRS, but for the people who are working for you to make sure that they get their W-2s, make sure that they get their, their 1099s and so on. The beauty of Rippling is they make it all easy. No more hassles for the entrepreneur, no more hassles for the HR person, whoever's running uh, uh, payroll is going to have a much better life once they start with Rippling because their software makes it easy to onboard people, to make sure that you understand that you have everything you need right down even to the t-shirt size in case you want to send your team members a t-shirt and not just make sure that you've got their social security, that you know where in the world they are, that you've categorized them right as 1099 or W-2, that you know where they live so that you're in compliance with all the laws, but also so that you get them access to their email account, all within Rippling, just one box you check off and you can give them an email account. If you want them to have access to your Asana or your Slack or whatever other software you use, it's all done within Rippling. As soon as they sign up, as soon as they're on board, they get everything and they have a home base within your company to log into the apps that you've given them access to that's part of your company to make sure that they check in and see how much money they're paid, what went where. And frankly, if things don't work out, Todd, to let them go in a way that's organized for them so they know what's next and they know what they're, what they're getting financially, but also organized for your company so you can know which apps you need to take um, uh, account and login information away from. And it's all done within Rippling to make it easy. That all-in-one HR platform that will make your life so easy. I bet even the founder of Interview Valet, let me add him so I could tell him about this. He might add payroll back to his list of things he does want to do once he sees Rippling. If you're out there and you don't believe me, challenge me. Go and talk to the people at Rippling. They'll do a free coaching call with you, coaching demo call, where they're going to show you how their software works, answer every question you've got, and see if it makes sense for you. If you go to rippling.com slash Mixergy, they'll do that for you right now. That's rippling.com slash Mixergy. I'm so grateful to them for sponsoring. And also, I'm a customer there, so I'm happy that they're that they're doing well for me. Love it. Yeah, great freaking service. Um Frankly, they're great for service because the founders is uh, is one of the top entrepreneurs in, in the Valley. And also they raise a ton of money. So they could basically add everything in there and have full on automation. Um, having, having cash, as I can attest to, having cash does help. Oof. Uh, um, I, they, they're doing a lot. All right. It was Ikigai. One of the things you talk about is Ikigai is this combination of what? How would you, exp- am I pronouncing it right? I looked at your eyes uh, and it seemed yeah, like. Yeah, no, it's Ikigai. Um, so. What is it? It's mean? a kind of well, the the model I like is really layered. So for the for the simplest version of it, uh, it it's it's important to one spell it correctly. It's I K I G A I Ikigai. It's Japanese, and it's essentially what are you what are you essentially the best you know in theory the best in the world at what what does the world need and how do you get paid for it? It's just the simple. But I, I layer other pieces on it in the book because I think there's other. I found that there can be false positives in the in the diagnostic. If you do the, the more comprehensive version of Ikigai, then you can really get to the root cause of, of what what do you want to do with your life? For me, it was a what do you want to do with your life thing. And so the Ikigai thing really um, 
help me synthesize and, and break down that I want to improve lives. And so as I was going through that model for myself, it was never, I wanted to improve lives through the staffing company. It just wasn't. And part of what I wanted, and I believe in part of what I teach my clients is expressing gratitude and appreciation. Um, Sean Aker, I want to give credit where credit was due. Saw him speak and someone raised the hand and said, well, if you're feeling depressed and you can't get out of bed, oh my gosh, that totally landed with me. What are some things you can do? And the first thing he said is you can do massive gratitude appreciations. And I thought, okay, I work in a business where nobody appreciates what we do. I work in a business where no one gives gratitude for anything we do. We give it internally within the organization. I mean, our turnover was really low because we did take care of people and they took care of us. The external, it just didn't work. And so, you know, I kept thinking, you know, I, I need to do something different. I want to do something different. And I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. I want to go do something different. I used to talk to my, my, my CEO friends. I said, you know, it's interesting. An employee can quit our company. Uh, and they, we, what do we give them? We give them a going away party. So I'm going to give you a party to take all of your RIP, all of your knowledge, and all of your skills to go work for my competitor. Interesting model. Um, but what, what, could, what do we get to? Well, we get to get paid last. We get to have all the fiduciary responsibilities. And we get to do, do jobs that are soul-sucking in misery. My buddies, who are all CEOs, said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't have jobs that are miserable. Yeah, they all, maybe that other stuff is true. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I am like the pink unicorn in this room. I found that I wasn't living my best self because I wasn't doing work that I found enjoyable and I didn't do work that I loved. So I had to make a change for myself. I get finding the part that we're passionate about. I get finding the part that I'm passionate about. The other parts are tougher. How do you know what people are willing to pay for that also matches with our, with my passion? So great question. So I, I'm blessed. I live in Detroit. I, I know Gina Whitman, who wrote a great book called Traction, teaches EOS. So I spent time, so I spent time before I left, I spent time doing a life by design exercise. So I went and spent time with EOS coaches. I had a coach. Um, I went and spent time with Vern Hardish and his people at Scaling Up, learned from them. So I did a lot of beta testing. And then I stumbled across this video one day on YouTube from these guys from Stanford, where they actually talk about how do you do a life by design? And I'm watching these guys in about 15 minutes. I'm like, that's what I've been doing. I didn't know I had been doing it yet. So I was getting massively curious. I was beta testing and talking to a lot of different people. I was volunteering the hell out of things and giving my time here and giving my time there, working with the, the accelerator members in EO, helping them. And I found through that process, I was getting energy. I was loving it. I was getting positive feedback. I was getting negative feedback on things I could do better. Great. And I just was, I was more and more passionate about it everywhere I go. So what you were saying to me, to anyone who's listening to us is, because I'm, I'm in a place where I want to find more stuff that matters that I could be doing. You're saying experiment by, by giving more of my time to different projects to see what people appreciate and then go into that. Like, well, what is that's it that what I'm I, enjoying that people are appreciating? Right. What am I enjoying that? And they're finding value in I mean, when someone comes to me in the accelerator program, he's got a $700,000 company. We, 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 in a year, we tune them up to 1.1 million. They were super appreciative. They, they didn't know what they didn't know. And I talk, and, and I always speak from experience, you know, that we, we talked about this earlier, you know, a lot of coaches you know, use the Tony Robbins model and Tony's great. He, it, it, you know, I ran a business. 
I can speak from experience. I've almost missed payroll. When you can't find money to, to, to run your payroll through Rippling, I can probably help you figure out a way to find it. Or I know banks that will give you short. I know how to do that because I've been there. I don't go to a book. I don't call my upline. I don't call the home office and get ideas. I take you through the process and I walk with you every step of the way. So when you run into a bottleneck, I'm there for you. The flip of that is I also talk about and work with the coaching clients a lot around their mindset around issues, why they don't do what they say they're going to do. So we do the Ikigai piece. We come up with their purpose. And inevitably, every single, every single one of them, Andrew, won't do what they say they're going to do. And I ask them, Meaning, why don't you? you? You've got clients. You're working with them. They find their purpose. Mm-hmm. They, they, they identify they don't do purpose. anything about it. Right. Okay, why? Great question. And they all have the same answer. It's all individual, but it's all an internal thing. It's, I can't fire somebody because nice people don't fire people. Um, as a child, I was told I was never good enough. So the, 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 the financial dreams or the, the home, my ideal dream home isn't within my grasp, even though the number, numbers say it totally is. Ah, so it's the mindset that's causing it's the problem. So, so a lot of coaches are prescriptive and they'll teach you a process, which is needed, which I will do second. What I will do first is I will get you aligned with what the hell do you want and why do you want it? So if someone says to me, I want to make a million dollars a year. Perfect. Totally doable. I want to validate that because it might be doable. I don't know. I don't know you well enough yet. Why do you want to make a million dollars? And we start walking them down the ladder and keep going and I keep going and I keep going and I keep going. And I don't take the surface answer. So always tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Because I knew that I didn't file bankruptcy back in 2006 on $600,000 in debt because I didn't want to let my kid down. And I didn't want to let my kid down because I told him we don't quit things. So I couldn't quit because then he, then he could go quit football and then he could go quit wrestling and then he could go quit school and they could go quit girl. He could quit. No, we're going we're gonna to find a way out of this. So it wasn't that I wanted to satisfy the bank. Yeah, what, they were on the list, but they weren't the main driver. My driver was my son. My driver was that relationship. So I, as a coach, have to figure out what Andrew's driver is or what Tom's driver is or what Jessica's driver is to get you anchored in to, to doing more than you think you're capable of doing to get you what you are, where you want to go. Ah, uh, okay. Got it. They, got it. So you're finding that anchor to then use as the driver to get me to take action. But in order to, to figure out where to direct my action, it's find out what do I love? What, um, what am I the best in the world at? And then the, and that, and what, and, what will, and what will people pay you for that you can go internal for? And then what will people pay you for your answer to how to do that was for yourself and for us is devote your time to things for free. See what people appreciate enough that they're grateful for it. Maybe even, maybe not even for free, just devote your time to different things to see what people appreciate enough to either pay for or, or think. Well, in it, in one and, other piece yes. and why are you do, so using Tom from interview valet, Tom believes that his, his core belief as a human being, and I spent years with him now, his core belief is that relationships are the greatest currency and relationships change the world. He, he creates relationships through podcast interviews. He creates relationships in, 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 in commerce through connecting people through podcast interviews. He didn't get into the podcast interviewing space because he said, oh, podcasts are cool and I want to you know, go after that, that area. He's like, I want to create more relationships in this world because I have a core belief that relationships are a currency. Hey, he's, How he's do someone I do that? Books, yes, he booked you here and he's yes. got this whole process to make sure that I was prepared to have you on. And Correct. so you're saying he books guests on podcasts 
not because that's where the money is, but because he believes in connecting the guest with the audience, the guest with the host. He has this inner need to connect people. All right. So I he's it. a connect. Yeah. And so then, well, how, how do you figure out what, then you go through the machinations of trying to figure out what to charge all those different pieces. Um, when I'm coaching people, you know, I tell everybody, listen, I'm an acquired taste. I am not a good coach for everyone. Here, here's where I excel. If you're, but if you're someone who sees coaching, for example, as an expense and not an investment, I am not the coach for you, and that's okay. And a lot of it too is, it's it's letting people know that not everything's going to be hunky dory. Not everything's going to be a great fit. But if you hear something, you feel something. I, I can tell you this: every client who's ever hired me has hired me before we've ever had a conversation, because they hear something, they experience something, they read something that I've said or done. Something lands with them; they want to learn more about it they're 80% closed before I ever even talk to them because it's about being transparent. It's about being authentic. It's about being real, at least from in my case. The book is going to be a good way for you to find people. It's been doing well. Yeah. Um, crazy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> See, there's my imposter syndrome. It just made it, it made a guest appearance. What, um, <laughs> the crazy part that, that where you just blurted that out, but, um, what are you doing to promote the book? Um, so, we, we did an Amazon pre-sale bestseller campaign. We got number one in six, what six categories. Mean, what's the Amazon pre-seller campaign? Yeah, so what you do is you announce to Amazon that you're, you're going to be launching a book. You, you get registered in their system. And then you do a pre-sale campaign to get people to, to buy an advanced copy. And they pay for it. And the, the more advanced copies you can sell, the, it drives ranking. There, there are time for So then at that point, I kind of understood it. And then I just hired a company to help me do it again. Uh, I do like five things in life really well. The rest of my life is totally outsourced. I kid you not. Um, and so they, they, they monitor, they tracked it. And then what I did is I, I reached out to about 300 of my closest friends. <laughs> and I asked them, would you please buy a copy of my book? I asked for help. And I, I didn't realize I had so many friends. Like, yeah, a bunch of people bought a bunch of books. I'm like, how cool is that? Um, drove the status. But from there, because the book, if I don't, if I break even on the book in the course of my lifetime, that would be great. The book isn't a moneymaker for me. The book is to get the message out there so it serves others. It's servant leadership. You know, I, I learned, especially during COVID, that the more I give, the more I gain. I talked to 42 CEOs in 67 days for free, volunteering around the globe for 30 minutes in each conversation. I got zero clients from it. I got zero. From there, my business, my coaching practice grew 300% because those 42 people became my best sales force. And they told their friends about it. Like, hey, that guy could probably help me. Or it's just, I really do believe in a, a more of a mindset of abundance than scarcity. So I, I love to promote the book. I, I, I'm doing podcasts. I did the pre-sale campaign. Um, I just got contacted by Fast Company. They want some content. Harvard, Harvard Business Review wants some content. I'm like, holy cow. You know, my mom has been, been, been deceased for about 11 years now. But if I told my mom that her kid got something in the Harvard Business Review, <laughs> uh, I, I, next time I come over for Sunday dinner, I have a feeling it would be my favorite dish. Just saying. Uh, the baseball is over your shoulder. I keep looking yep. at them. This is a wild collection. I didn't even yeah. realize that those are baseballs because they're just like polka dots all over the wall. Yeah. So I'm a huge baseball guy. I, I, baseball for me is very much a metaphor for business and a metaphor for life. Because mm -hmm. you're successful in baseball if you fail seven out of 10 times as a hitter. You hit uh, 300. Okay. There you go. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, those I mean, are all signed balls behind you. Yeah, yeah, I've got about give or take about three hundred, okay. and then I got jerseys and I got baseball cards. I'm I'm just you know it when I when I so when I was working at the recruiting company, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say someday I'm going to have a home office where uh, it's going to be my, my Zen garden, so to speak. It's going to be my, my place of Quan, my place of calm. And now I've actually got that. And it's just, you know, I, I, I literally come downstairs, walk into my office and I start my day. You know, when we end our conversation today, that'll be the end of my day and I'll go outside in the living room. It's just, I, I, this is my happy place to be. I, I look at all, there's always a story. Baseball is a great, prized possession emotionally. Great question. Cause usually people ask me what the most valuable one is. So I'll tell you my most prized one emotionally. So I still play competitive baseball. As we were talking about, I, I got a split lip because I got <laughs> baseball practice the other day. I got hit by a pitch or hit by, hit by a ball, split my lip. Um, so I still play. I'm 52 for anybody who cares. So it's not, you don't meet a lot of 52 year old retired CEO coach baseball players. It's just kind of a, I'm kind of a unicorn in that world. And I still play baseball because I freaking love it. Even on the bad days, I still love it. And one of my business gifts, so 2006, massive mess, massive problems, massive issues. Uh, It was 2008, business is turning around, business is turning around. And my coach, my brother at the time goes, you never celebrate the victories. You're still beating yourself up for the sins of the past. That's what he used to call them. He goes, I'm going to challenge you, do something nice for yourself. I said, fine, I always want to go to Tigers fantasy camp. Haven't played baseball since the 10th grade. I'm going to go down there. And I go. I, we, we hit our goal. I, I, my mind, I've earned the, like a sales contest. I earned the reward. I go. Went to fantasy camp 15 times. Started playing competitively. Now I travel. I play in Arizona and play all over the place. But I've never faced a professional pitcher before until about four, four or five years ago. Playing, playing ball. Down in Arizona, or down in, down in Lakeland, Tigers Fantasy Camp, they're bringing Joel Zamaya. Joel Zamaya just retired. He's like 33. I'm 48. He still throws really hard. Now, I see fast pitching all summer, so it didn't bother me. And um, we practice against Joel. My buddy Chris crushing the ball. Chris is a great player. I come in, Joel goes, Hey, where do you want? I said, oh, Like right in the center of my bat, just like he did for the previous guy. Boom, hits me with the pitch. And he doesn't just hit, like, my, there's a picture. My arm went blue from my elbow to my shoulder. He hit me. Wow. Second pitch, hits me again. He goes, oh, I'm really sorry about the first one. The second one slipped. <laughs> so we become friends. You know, he's like, oh, I, I, I won't poke that bear again. We win the camp championship Saturday morning. You play against the former pros. You play a game against them. It's, and so it's me, my friend Kevin, and my friend Chris are the first three hitters because we won. Zamaya's pitching. He looks like he's like, I'm pitching to you. None of this fantasy camp stuff. I'm pitching to you. I'm like, let's go. Okay. I had a 13 pitch at bat off of him. He's throwing 85 easily. What does that mean, 13 pitch at bat? Dave? So he threw 13 pitches because usually, you know, he's good and we suck, and he'll usually okay. throw three pitches, strikes you out, and you sit down. I'm following off, I'm battling, and I'm battling, and I'm battling. Finally, the last pitch, I get out early and I pull it to the third baseman, throws it over to first base, I'm out. First baseman's giving me a standing ovation. He goes, dude, like that was awesome. Like you really, like you were all in. I'm like, yeah. I go, I go, he goes, here's the ball. He gives me the ball. Joel signs uh, the ball. He puts the date on there. And he goes, uh, first camper to ever like get, get, uh, what do you put? Get wood on the ball. You know, wooden bat. Yeah. Next year we come back. Same scenario. We win it again. Joel's pitching at us again. And he's like, because he was our coach. He's like, okay. 
I'm really pitching to you three knuckleheads. No problem. So he's like, he wants to throw change-ups and everything. Catcher stands up. He goes, I, catcher's Mike Heath. Mike would have been about 62 at the time. says, I can't see the ball. No, no, just throw straight fastball. So he's blowing it on the black. I put the bat out there, and there's a picture of me, like, just diving into the ball. Cue it into right field. I get a hit. Everybody oh, stands up and wow. cheers. They give me the ball. In the middle of the game, Joel signs the ball. The ball has no value to me or to anyone but me because it was – like an accomplishment. It was a story. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's somebody who's had, you know, who's thrown a baseball literally 104 miles an hour and I got a hit off of him. Not at his best. Certainly, you know, I, I always appreciated the guys who came and spent time with us. They're, they were significantly better athletes than we ever were, but it, it's just, you know, to, to say that happened was, was such a, um, such a rewarding, it was a satisfying journey yeah. to get there. So I, I appreciate you asking. I, I didn't even know this thing existed. I started Googling it as we were talking. Tiger Fantasy Camp. It's available. It's like it's it's a Detroit Tigers. They have their own fantasy camp. Yeah. Wow. All right. Um, thanks so much for being on here. I didn't get it. Oh, it's actually not that expensive. About four thousand um, dollars plus Florida sales tax to go do this. Yeah, but when you do it, when you do it fifteen times, maybe you got a bit of a, <laughs> an addiction. <laughs> It's just a college education. I mean, (laughs) you know what I once did, um, I wanted to, to get into cycling and I was kind of curious about triathlons. So I signed up for this triathlon weekend where Mm. the winners of the Ironman are training you. And I loved it because they don't have the ability to hold back. Not that they don't care. Not that they're just (laughs) passing, but they bring out the best out of you just because if they're going to run, they're going to run. If they're going to cycle, they're going to cycle. Um, and uh, it's it made me a much better cyclist. That one weekend was oh, way bet, better yeah. than any. If you combine all the other biking I've done in my life and compared to that one weekend, I got more out of that weekend. Than That's awesome. Good for you. Good for you. I should be doing more of that, actually. I do admire how people get coaches much faster than I do. I think about it as a last minute thing, but I'm trying to get better. Like I, I just got into chess. I said, I'm just going to hire a coach to get me to play better. Yeah. So, so the, you might find this funny. So I mentioned I pl- still play competitive baseball at my senior citizen advanced age. And I know I'm a senior citizen because I qualify for AARP. Okay. So I hired a hitting, I have a hitting coach. So not only do I have a personal coach, Danny Freeland, I have a coach for my relationship from, you know, cause I can't coach my significant other. That's, that's toxic. That's not a good plan for anybody <laughs> listening. Don't do that. And I have a baseball coach and he's young. He's like 32, but he played college ball and he looks at my swing and he helps me get better because Again, like I said earlier, if I'm going to do something, I either have to go all in or not do it. So if I'm going to play ball, I'm going to get a coach. I'm going to get better. I'll never be as good as the guys who've had baseball cards, and that's okay. But I want to be the best version of it that I can be. And so when I tell my clients, like, yeah, I can't talk to you this week. So I'm going to I'm going to play down there. I'm going to play in Phoenix. They're like, oh, you're playing softball? I'm like, no, I don't play softball. I play hardball. <laughs> look at my lip. You'll see what happens. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, his lip has been hit. All right. Yes. The book for anyone who wants to go check it out, it's from uh, Suck to Success, the guide for extraordinary entrepreneurship. Todd Palmer, thanks for being here. I want to thank the two sponsors. One of them, I didn't even do the ad for. I'm not going to charge them, of course, but I'm grateful to them. HostGator, thank you so much for sponsoring. And Rippling, if you're ne- if you need to pay your people, manage uh, their software and really make it easy on yourself so that it doesn't become one of your not to do items. Go to rippling.com slash mixergy, rippling.com slash mixergy, and they'll show you their software. You'll be blown away by what they built over there. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me.